Good afternoon. Um, I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and I'm very pleased uh, to welcome you to a book event which I think will be not only unusual, but also I think unusually fascinating. Um, a book event with my guest, Steve Hilton, author of More Human, which I have to tell you, Steve, I think is one of the most thoughtful and thought-provoking books that I've read in a very, very long time, um, and particularly the title. You know, uh, someone once asked the great Renaissance prince, uh, Frederico de Montefeltre, Duke of Urbino, he said, what's the secret to being a great ruler? And he said simply, essere umano, be human. Now, in his case, by being human, he, what he meant was, You've got to come down off of your throne. You've got to think the way your people think, understand their needs, understand how they feel about things and think about matters. And also, this is very important also from his idea of, of wow, ruler deal, is, is relationship with his subjects is to keep things simple. To be human in the Renaissance context meant things were simple and natural and straightforward away. Um, Making things simple, making them natural, understanding how people think and feel. This is really one of the key themes of, of your book. And we're delighted to have you here because I think your experience in these things is one which is not only unusual, but I think extremely illuminating today. Steve Hilton, for those of you who don't know who he is, and if you don't know who he is, then you really haven't been following politics very closely on either side of the Atlantic. Steve Hilton is, was senior advisor to Prime Minister David Cameron, the man often credited for reinventing and reinvigorating the Conservative Party in Great Britain, a uh, man who was seen as the ultimate radical uh, at the time in which he was working with Cameron, but who I think in terms of the lessons that he's left for how political parties revive themselves and reinvent themselves in the face of changing circumstances. I think we'll want to hear a lot about that and what's involved with that. Steve is also co-founder and CEO of CrowdPack, uh, which is a Silicon Valley political tech startup. And I'm hoping you'll be willing to talk to us a little bit about mm -hmm. what you're doing and what's happening with that. The other thing I'll mention about Steve is that he's also a graduate of New College, Oxford. Don't let the name confuse you. New College was founded in 1379, which by Oxford standards is, I guess, fairly new. Uh, long distinguished history of graduates and faculty and those who attended, uh, one of whom, in addition to Steve, is also uh, Bobby Jindal, uh, governor of Louisiana, who I think in many ways wishes perhaps he had paid more attention to the lessons <laughs> you had to offer on politics. Uh, maybe his fortunes would be rather different than they were uh, when, uh, when, when I did a program with him uh, some at the very start of the campaign. Steve, I think one of the issues that everybody has come to recognize with this election season is that there's something really seriously wrong and broken with the American political system. Um, and yet, at the same time, we've got all these people, pundits and political consultants and uh, political theorists, who have just simply been traumatized, I'd even say paralyzed, by what's unfolded in this election season. And they seem unable to get a grasp either on what the problem is or what the solutions are. Do you see any kind of light at the end of this tunnel? Others don't seem to. I do. Um, 
Very much so, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. First of all, I just want to make a little note. I've, I've made a few notes here, and I've written down here, traumatized, paralyzed. I think we're seeing the situation in very it's similar very the same way. It's um, true. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming. Thank you for, for hosting me here today. For, in the UK, for many years, my main association with the Hudson Institute was Erwin Steltzer. Right. when he wrote columns, and who I knew very well, and in fact asked him to uh, help us out with some regulatory reform issues in government. And for many years, I thought that Erwin Stelzer was the Hudson Institute. So it's great to know that there's, there's something else behind it, and it's wonderful to be here. Look, and um, we're delighted to have you at our new facilities, too. Great. Right. Thank you so much for coming. Just also a quick story on New College. Um, I was on the Hugh Hewitt show this week, and he mentioned that he'd been to New College, Oxford, mm. and he uh, was explaining how much he loved the chapel and the dining hall, these wonderful old buildings, as you say, from ma many centuries ago. And one of my favorite stories uh, about New College is that the architect who designed the chapel um, and the dining hall, which is basically one long connected building with these amazing wooden beams holding up the roof, beautiful old wooden beams, um, at the time that they were built, he ordered that oak trees be planted at that time, so that when the time came hundreds of years later to repair the roof, the oak, the oak trees, the <laughs> we'll same oak trees would be there. Which that's I that's think forward is thinking. Exactly, one of the best examples of, of long-term thinking. Um, I do think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I, I think it's very interesting seeing how the conservative movement generally and the Republicans seem to be traumatized and paralyzed. That's exactly what seems to be going on, and you see it in the response particularly in this town, to the election campaign. And you see it um, with things like the, the, the calls and exploration of potentially a third-party candidate and all the, all the rest of it. You see it regularly, um, as we did again this morning, in the agonized, hand-wringing columns of David Brooks um, in the New York Times. Um, and I read those, and I, I, I get very frustrated, because to me, the answer is pretty clear. Um, I've written it in a long way in this book, and I'll try and give you a short version in the next few minutes. Um, I think that the answer to the problems facing uh, America and the UK and other uh, industrialized countries is contained in these pages, in this idea of doing something about an issue that we have to acknowledge, the starting point is to acknowledge that what's going on in this election campaign is helpful. What Trump is doing on the right, what Sanders is doing on the left, is helpful because they're shining a spotlight on something that is true and that the right and the conservative movement needs to understand and respond to, mm. which is that, in my view, uh, for decades now, regardless of who has been in power, We've seen um, a policy agenda implemented across the world that is um, driven by a kind of technocratic view of the world. Um, I sometimes put this in a, in a demotic way just to make the point that we live in a world run by bankers, bureaucrats, and accountants. And their agenda, which is basically to favor big business over small uh, to push globalization and, and technological innovation at all costs um, without thinking about the impact on, on people, uh, to, to glorify efficiency at any price. 
and to be callous, actually, about the impact of this on real people's lives. That agenda, which has been rolling forward, as I say, regardless of who's been in power, for decades, not just the last eight years, for many decades, you're seeing the revolt against that, and it's helpful. Now, what we need to do, which the candidates are most definitely not doing, and you do not see this in any of the campaigns, is respond to that with a real agenda for reform, for doing something about this dehumanized world that we've built, where the systems and structures that we use to run government and politics and business and many aspects of our lives have just become too distant from the human scale, which means that people sense that the decisions that affect their lives are being made by someone else far away that they have no ability to relate to or to control. And that, I think, is the central problem underlying uh, the, the real-world situation in, in our democracies, which Trump and Sanders are benefiting from, but without any constructive response. I'd like to give you that constructive response. Um, and I'll do it in three parts. The first, for me, is the foundational uh, policy agenda. I'm going to pause you. Or, one quick, just yes. one more point on this, just so we understand what the playing field looks like. One of the key points that you make here is that we usually, and it's a key point, by the way, is of great interest here at Hudson, is the issue of bureaucratization of institutions that's unfolded, not just in the last 50 years, but going back at least 100 plus. Yeah. And that so much of our politics tends to see government versus business as two antagonists fighting it out uh, over you know, turf and deciding about taxes and so on and regulation. And one of the points that you raise, which I think is very telling, is, is that actually in America today, business and government are accomplices. They are, if to put it in extreme terms, almost partners in crime mm -hmm. in terms of working together and, and both as major drivers of this bureaucratization that's unfolded here today. Very much so. And I think that is one of the key planks of the kind of reform, a modern conservative reform agenda that we need. In, in the book, I describe some of these vast corporations that have such an impact on people's lives um, as not really businesses at all. They're not really competing in a marketplace in the way that conservatives would want. Um, they are basically, the term I use is private sector bureaucracies. That's how they think, that's how they operate. They're handing glove off and with, with, with regulators to keep competitors out. I'm sort of jumping ahead to one particular part of the mm. argument, but I, I absolutely agree this is not just about government. Now, I know that that makes it a kind of difficult message to, to potentially project into, a, into an election campaign where it's all about politics and government, but I think it's vital to understand that it's very broad, this problem, and, um, and I think we need to understand it fully in order to address it. And especially for conservatives That's who, right. t who tend to see but, that... that line themselves up on the business versus the government side and don't perhaps yeah. see that. And, and I collusion. think that's really important to understand in relation to political revival and an appeal to a broader group of political supporters um, who we will need to prompt to reappraise the conservative movement, to take another look and the Republican Party and, and consciously saying to them, look, you think we're like this, but actually we're like that. It's a really important part of that, however uncomfortable it may be. Mm. Um, I'll give you a specific example. Shortly after David Cameron 
was elected leader of the Conservative Party, we, we took out a full-page ad in one of the Sunday newspapers with six short statements on it, all of which were, were explicitly designed to provoke people to reappraise the Conservative Party. This is, uh, by the way, ten years ago. And um, one of them was... I may get the exact wording, although I actually wrote them, but I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like... Um, we believe that we should not just stand up for business, but stand up to business when it's in the interests of society and the wider world. It's a really important... I mean, that sounds obvious, actually, to say that. Who, who could disagree with that? That you surely should put the public interest first, not the interests of one particular group. But actually, that was a really shocking thing. It provoked days and days and days of debate about what has happened to the Conservative Party. Um, and now it's normal. And that's how the Conservative Party is seen. It is not seen as captured by one side of that argument. So it's just a small point. Um, in terms of the uh, agenda for reform, I would point to, for a sort of more human conservatism, um, I would pick out three things, three kind of planks, just to, just to highlight, and then we can get into the details and questions, I hope. The first is, for me, the foundational policy agenda for almost any of the problems we seek to deal with. And again, it's based on a very conservative insight and belief, which is that the foundational unit of society is the family. And so many policy areas go back to that. And in this technocratic, bureaucratic world, uh, the, the, that's an easy thing to lose sight of. That at the heart of the battle against poverty and inequality and education, all these, all these problems that we think about from a policy point of view, in, in the end, it's individuals and families. And so I think conservatives have not thought enough. They, 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 they're very happy to say we believe in the family, we back the family, and we're pro-family, but they haven't thought enough about what do you actually do to help families, literally, in the individual sense. And I think that the two chapters that bring this out most in my book are the chapters on poverty and inequality, for, because for both of those issues, I think the, 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 the way in to dealing with them is not some kind of bureaucratic scheme like uh, the earned income tax credit or w reforming welfare or any of these things that... that, that the war on poverty. Yeah, I mean, look, the truth is that for many, many... Here's the, here's the sort of simple story. For decades, and this is true in the UK as well as here, uh, government has tried to deal with poverty through bureaucratic schemes of one kind and another. Typically on the left, that has meant an emphasis on giving resources, giving money and other support to poor people. And on the right, more often it has involved some form of, if you like, the stick rather than the carrot, some kind of work incentive or whatever. And usually it's a combination of those things. And they've completely failed in the sense that Generally speaking, the, pop, the problem's got worse, not better, and it's cost us more as taxpayers. It's more of a drain on our economies. It's more of a drain on society. And you, you will ne I mean, the, another way I put this is you will never end up doing what conservatives typically want to do, which is reducing the uh, size of government. If you think about it in a market sense, you've got supply and demand. Um, we focus all the time on cutting the supply of government, cutting back government functions and regulation and taxes and spending. But you can't really do that sustainably unless you cut the demand for government. 
Because in the end, politicians have to respond to the problems in front of them. And unless we actually solve these problems, you're going to constantly need um, the kind of government intervention that, that, that we all want to see reduced. So you have to get to the causes, not just the symptoms of poverty. And I think that comes down to the family, how children are raised. There's so much evidence now from neuroscience and other fields that actually what happens in the family, what happens particularly in the early years of children's lives, is more important than anything in determining whether they will go on to be successful, functioning, flourishing adults who contribute to society rather than act as a drain on it, or not. And, and it's not good enough just to brush that aside. We have to really understand that that's vital. And therefore, we have to get involved, and we have to have creative solutions to that. Now, I'll give you one example, uh, a, a specific example which is detailed in the book, which is that we did a data analysis in government looking at the uh, cost to the state of families living in poverty. And it turns out, as, I'm, as I know is true here, that a very, very small number of families cost a disproportionate amount. And the way we put it is they suffer the most problems and they cause the most problems. If you add up the cost of the state, of their welfare, other support, crime, uh, educational failure, addiction, drain on health services, you name it, they are a very small number um, are at the source of a lot of cost to the state. And so what we did in the UK was take initially the 120,000, so not a huge number, the 120,000 families in the UK determined by various measures from, gained from local authorities who are in this situation, the most d dysfunctional families, and say, right, we are going to turn their lives around, and we're not going to do it through the typical sort of distant bureaucratic scheme. We're going to do it face-to-face, one-to-one. And the characteristics of these families in poverty um, on a human level are really striking. The average number of children in each of these households, the average, uh, was five. There's a story I'm going to tell you where there was a single parent, it's a real story, who had ten children from different fathers. This is typical. And she um, lived in a totally chaotic home, uh, has never, had never worked in her life, and was also on the receiving end of many different types of government intervention. Social workers, counsellors of different types, local authority, national programmes, all sorts of people trying to help her from the government and totally failing to do anything other than keep her in poverty. That's what these, this government intervention was actually doing, keeping her stuck. And so what we did with the programme that, that I set up called the Troubled Families Programme was basically say, we're going to sweep away all of that, we're going to deal with this person, not through the bureaucratic silos of the government, but through, on the, through a hum, in a human way, one-to-one. -one. We're going to put a person next to her, a family worker, who will work with that person on a human level, understanding the deep emotional and psychological reasons that she can't get her life together, and help her overcome them. Like, a, you could call it a life coach, you could call it whatever you want. We actually called it a family intervention worker. The woman herself called it the family interference worker. That's what we were... <laughs> That's um, a There you are. So what was the response like when you made this proposal, and then how did, that, how did you deal with the objections which would come both from the left and from the right to such a, to such a concept? Well, the objections are that this is a nanny state, typical... Oh. Yes. They, these, this woman and families like that are basically barely functioning as adults. They need a nanny. And someone's got to do it. If this isn't done, 
the problem remains with us. And it's not good enough to say, well, we can't intervene, it's government. It's, someone's got to do it. Now, the delivery of that service doesn't have to be through a, a centralized bureaucratic scheme. It can be done by a local voluntary organization. It doesn't matter. You know, the, the actual delivery... And I would, That's interesting. It's a very important point. And, and I'll come to that in... I think that... Let's just move off the... Fa so there's lots more detail on that you'll find in the book. But it's an example of understanding that if we're going to solve these problems for the long term, we have to start at the human level and find a way to understand people's real lives and not, the, not those as we imagine them as policymakers sitting in an office miles away. The second plank, and so I think, and, and actually there's a whole range of family uh, policies aimed at the family that, that addressed this from different perspectives. For example, helping parents improve their parenting skills so that children, when they, there's a huge um, problem with children arriving at school, basically, not, and this is not just the, the bottom, if you like, uh, smaller group of totally dysfunctional families. This is, you're talking about 30% um, who arrive at school basically in, in, in a state that means it's impossible for them to be educated properly. They're spending all this money on their schooling, public money, and they're not getting anything from it because they don't know how to sit still, they don't know how to relate, they don't make eye contact, they can't be taught. You need to deal with this before they get to school. Um, now, the way you deal with it brings me to the second sort of plank of reform. There was a... Uh, it, it, it's how do you reform the public sector to make it more effective in the modern world? What's the conservative approach to that? And there, there's a notion that... Um, the, 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 I wouldn't necessarily describe this as a political slogan, but it's an idea that informed a lot of what we did in the UK, uh, certainly the thinking that we developed and, and to a certain extent implemented. It's based on an analysis of how, his, in, over history, uh, this bureaucratization has taken place. Um, we had a notion of a post-bureaucratic age that was potentially ahead of us. The story is that for most of human history, the pre-bureaucratic age, most things were done locally because they had to be. Before railways and telecommunications, it was impossible for a distant bureaucrat or ruler or king or whatever to actually control things. And so nearly everything was done on a local level with local decision-making and local uh, social welfare and all, the, all that. As, the, as, as, as humankind evolved, it was all pretty much local. Until the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, telecommunications made it possible for distances where it took two weeks to get a letter from A to B. Now you could do it in a, in a couple of hours. And that made it possible for inform, through information flows for a centralized authority to start to gather information about what was going on everywhere and to impose their view. And so you, you, you saw the, the rise of the age we're in now, the bureaucratic age, where um, you find the centralization of functions um, uh, totally taking over the way things are run. And that was not just in government, but in business too, where you saw the rise of the big corporations that were able to centralize uh, resources and economic power. Now, a lot of this was good, by the way. I'm not saying that this you know, didn't result in lots of progress um, in various ways, but it did result and has resulted in this massive centralization. Where we are today is on the cusp, potentially, of a post-bureaucratic age because of the information revolution. Because now, through data and technology, we can put power directly in people's hands in a way that was never possible before. 
And so the central concept, I think, that, that we can now think of to reform and organize public services, this comes back to the previous point about the delivery of the family stuff, is actually an age-old conservative belief, which is markets. What we can now do through better information is, del- is reform public services through a market-based approach, which is not what we have. This comes to education. In education, what do we have? with the provision of schools, we have a totally 19th century model of factory schools, one public school in every neighborhood that everyone goes to that's run by the government with the teacher unions dominating and the, and the curriculum set and you'd have debates over common core and is it set by the federal government or the states? It doesn't matter. It shouldn't be set by anybody. There shouldn't be government Uh, intervention in that sense because it should be delivered by a market and now we can do that through better information we so so the particular reform plan for schools that i set out in this book is that we should have a completely open market for schools where you have not just a couple of charter schools potentially competing with the public school in every neighborhood but 20 or 30 schools because we open up the whole marketplace to new providers private companies non-profits groups of parents being free to set up a school, offer their services in a local market, but, and the government, uh, its main role is to uh, facilitate that market and make it run properly. For example, requiring that data and information is published so that parents c- can choose on an objective base- basis. This is another one of your main points, isn't it? The issue of transparency. That's right. Transparency <clears throat> and accountability, because that, that's, what we meet, that's what the post-bureaucratic age allows you to do through technology and data is is make everything transparent so people can choose, not the bureaucrats, not the distant decision makers, but people locally. Can make that decision. And so that you can deliver public services in a completely different way. You can apply this to healthcare, you can apply it to training. I mean, we, we see in the election campaign a very powerful theme emerging, which is the, the deindustrialization of the economy, um, resulting in massive social dissatisfaction, stagnant wages, job losses, and so on. And we all know the story, and that's what Sanders and Trump are tapping into. What are their solutions? Non-existent. Free college doesn't make any sense. We'll bring the jobs back, but we're not told how. The real answer to that... Or what kind of jobs. Or what kind of jobs. We have a de-industrializing economy, but an industrialized system for delivering education and training through this kind of 20th century model of bureaucratic centralized uh, government intervention. There, too, in terms of skills and training, we can have a more human approach through the market. There are companies now, I profile one in the book, uh, Udacity, but there are others, who have developed a way of delivering skills training literally on people's phones that they can fit in to their daily life. The current government approach, the bureaucratic, centralized approach is, well, we'll, we'll pay for a training program. You have to go four hours a day for six months or a year. Who, no one can do that. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit with their life. And the training that they get is not even connected to the marketplace of the future because it doesn't relate to the world of work that these skills might be needed for. Whereas we're seeing through the market with companies like Udacity, they have a concept called nano degrees, nano courses, which they develop with employers. And these are courses you can literally do on your phone, fit it into your life at any time. That is a perfect example of a post-bureaucratic way of thinking about a, a, a public sector intervention that could be delivered in a completely different way. And that's And then it's a more human way because it means that you can choose the course that's perfect for you and that the world and the the next job or career that you're interested in. And you're in control of it. And I like this because if we think about the reemergence of markets in the information age, if we think about markets as themselves really forms of information, 
the dissemination of information through price, the way so many economists have, especially the Austrian school, then the information age and markets naturally go together. They na there's a natural exactly fit right. in a way in which in way in which the way in, the way in which the large bureaucratic structures simply constantly get in the way. And that's why I think this is an exciting and modern and contemporary agenda for the conservative movement and for Republicans, because this is the way that people experience the world in other areas of their lives. And the way, if you think about how we um, expect to, you know, with, with, with retail and travel and the consumption of news and information, it's all been revolutionized through this, and it's a market-based approach. And, and actually, that is something that, that is seen as, as you know, young people and and, 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 the, and technology, all these things that, that are not associated with the Republicans and the right and so on. Actually, that way of thinking is, could be at the heart of a, a, a reform agenda for public policy. And we, on this side of the intellectual argument, are perfectly placed to do it because we believe in this stuff. We believe in the dispersal of power. We believe in, and that's what markets do. That's what they do. Now, you do say one thing about education which might be a little controversial for some. Uh, on the right side of the political equation. And when you talk about the inequality of resources mm -hmm. from school districts, thinking from the American side point of view as well, of how in wealthy communities the schools simply accumulate more and more resources, and, are, and whereas in poor districts they're just almost impossible to catch up in terms of resources. And you do suggest that this might be a role for the state, and I use that in the broadest sense, which is to actually allocate the resources on a per-pupil basis instead of, you know, we, where the richest are, they have the richest and best schools, and where the poor are, they have the, the worst schools. Now, how does that fit within, the, it, some would say that this is a, then a direct challenge to local control over schools, isn't it? No. Um, the opposite. I think that, um, well, first of all, there's a really important point. You know, as conservatives, we can't run away from the notion of fairness. That should be a concept that we own because we believe in equality of opportunity, not outcome, but opportunity. And fairness should be at the heart of how we see the world. Um, we shouldn't allow the left to claim that mm. concept. Um, so what that means, the, w the way I would see it, is that you have total decentralization of the provision of schooling to a local market, and the role of the state is is to hold the ring, as it were, in terms of fairness, in basically two ways. One, there obviously will, now we're getting to the real details of the implementation of such a reform, but there needs to be some kind of permitting system, some, some licensing system, so that there's a sort of minimum standard for uh, a, an operator of a school. Now, we're a long way from that at the moment. I mean, even in the UK, I mean, and by the way, I don't want anyone to think that what I'm talking about here has been done in the UK. I tried to do it, um, but there are massive obstacles in the way. For example, we did introduce a concept like this in the UK education system called free schools. But the thing that would have really opened up that marketplace would be to have changed the law preventing private sector for-profit companies from operating schools. That's a bar that makes no sense, um, which is in place in the UK. It was before we came uh, to power, and it still is. We failed to argue for that. So there has to be some kind of... So what are the roles for the state in this, in this educational marketplace? One, um, some kind of uh, permitting or li licensing system. Mm -hmm. 
and two, the, the uh, assurance of a level playing field. And that, that basically means for a voucher system that means that every family has equal purchasing power in this marketplace. And I think that is a role for central government because that's the only place where you can actually properly iron out some of these uh, differences in income and, and so on between different places uh, that often are historically driven and, and, and to ensure fairness need to be handled. Otherwise, you actually, uh, you actually end up with what Bernie Sanders would describe as a rigged and Trump as a rigged market, where, where if you've got more money, you can get the better outcome. And I think that that is a role for the state to ensure a level playing field, basically a voucher that is of, it doesn't mean it's the same amount, because in different, the costs vary around the country and so on. But we're really in the detail of the, of the implementation, but I think that is a perfectly reasonable role for the state. You mentioned, you bring up the word school voucher. In an American context, of course, as you know, this has been a live issue yes. in the Republican Party, state by state, as well at the national level. Um, and there's two challenges, two opportunities, two challenges, whatever way you'd want to look at it, that I'd like you just briefly to address. One is, of course, the steady and persistent opposition of teachers' unions to any kinds of changes, and they've become a very, very powerful lobbying group within Democratic Party, not just the national level, but state and, and municipal level. But on the other side, we also have, unlike Britain, the we have states that enjoy power over large parts of their uh, social, economic, educational fabric, mm -hmm. and who can become states that can become laboratories for these sorts of ideas and directions. So my question for you is, is that addressing the teachers' unions and that issue, what is the, what is the best way for a revived Republican Party to take on that kind of a question? And second of all, how do you turn the states into the kinds of laboratories for these sorts of, yeah. of trials that can say, look, it worked in such and such a state, it worked in California, it worked in Georgia, it worked in Wisconsin, let's go ahead and try it somewhere else as well. Yeah, I think that is the opportunity, but let, let me address the union point first. First of all, I think it's, this is a battle, I mean, one of the things that's really striking to me coming to, I've, I've lived in, in California now for four years, is really striking is that the battles over unions, particularly public sector unions, have barely begun compared <laughs> to where we were in the UK in the 1970s and the 1980s. So I feel that that is just a political fight that needs to happen. And there are great people waging that fight in different areas, and we need to give them our backing. Um, one important component of that, this actually ends up relating to CrowdPack, to my company, yeah, okay. is the role of money and political money. And this is, I think, an opportunity for, so we hear a lot about big money in politics. And I am highly critical of that. Um, in the sense that it's another example of the bureaucratized, centralized world we're in, where, where powerful interests control things to the detriment of... You have some very damning things to say about super PACs and the role... Yes, but, it's, but let's be even-handed. It's also the unions. It's not just a one-sided thing. It's not just, the, it's not just the business interest. And they're both wrong, because they are both examples of centralized elites taking power out of the hands of individuals. And so, first of all, in relation to unions, 
this, this story needs to be, we are on the side of workers and working people, not the unions. And we need to divide them because the unions is not the same as workers and working people. They don't represent their interests. And we mustn't allow that to be claimed. The unions are an organized elite group just as much as a big corporation. And we need to think carefully about how we make those arguments to, to not allow ourselves to be trapped into a kind of workers v. bosses mentality. We're for the workers and, and people because we, are, uh, we have a more human conservatism. That's the sort of way I would argue that. But coming back to Crowdpack, the, the reason I started Crowdpack, which is basically a crowdfunding platform for politics, think about it as kind of Kickstarter for politics. It's a way for um, any candidate to raise money for their campaign in, with a simple online tool, um, which can be used in a variety of ways. For example, if you're thinking about, we, we have the capacity for someone to uh, collect pledges before they even announce their campaign, for example. It's a great way for more independent or independent-minded candidates to run for office without the backing of the party machines. And you have lots of people who may want to get involved, perhaps locally or at the state legislative level in politics, and then, yeah, but I'm not really a Democrat. I can't. I'm, I sort of agree with some of what the Democrats say and some of what the Republicans say, but I don't really want to go through that process of joining the big parties and going to those awful meetings and so on. Crowdpack is a way for people to get into politics without any of that, to raise money in a completely new way, in small donations, without the mechanisms of the party machinery. And yes, the plan behind Crowdpack is to break the stranglehold of big donors on the political system, but not just the super, not just Adelson and the Koch brothers and all the sort of notorious figures, but also the unions is just as much on that side. And, and that's, it's a non-partisan platform for political engagement and the funding of politics is one of the central things that we hope to uh, really radically reform. And, and the way I think about, and again, I, there's a chapter on, the fir first chapter in the book is about politics, and I explain about Crowdpack there, but one way of thinking about it is, and this is how I certainly I think about it, is achieving uh, campaign finance reform through the marketplace, through a business. Um, because while all these arguments are going on about how to reform the funding of politics, I don't see any consensus around that. Um, some want more state funding, others want caps on spending. There's no consensus. You've got the Supreme Court um, decisions, not just Citizens United, but going back many years that, um, that, that, that go in a particular direction there. I don't see any prospect for real reform through that means, but we can do it through the marketplace. Because actually, if we succeed with Crowdpack, it'll, candidates themselves hate begging for money. You think those people down there love spending four hours a day on the phone literally begging for money? They hate it just as much as we hate them doing it. And so if we can free them from that by allowing many more people to contribute to politics through, uh, through tools and, uh, and, and information, with tools and information that, they can, that fits with their lives today, then I think we can achieve the aims of the reformers through the market. That's what Crowdpack is. You stress in the book, uh, and articles and interviews you've done, the striking similarity between Trump and Sanders and the similarity of the attitudes in many ways of the voters who have turned to them almost out of uh, kind of desperation. Yeah. Who say the system is broken, the system is ossified, and we need something new, we need a new direction here. Um, Trump, Sanders, 
are they are there elements in the way in which they've now propelled their campaigns forward uh, that can serve as useful models for the way in which, let's say, I'll just focus on the GOP and the way in which the GOP can, in a sense, revivify itself and, and resurrect itself as an active party? I don't think so. Don't think so. Um, simply because the Trump campaign is 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 just not. The, you know, my, of course, I, as I said at the beginning, I think that he has performed a useful function in revealing um, some of the discontent and malaise in the country, and, and that it, it doesn't have to be a Democrat that speaks to that. And that there's a, there's a, and, and actually, the way he criticizes, for example, the um, concentration of economic power in certain industries, and in his phrase, the way that, for example, the health insurance companies take care of the legislators and get what they want through the political system, that's, that's helpful and good. But there's no, pla there's no agenda there for change. And, and the way he's run his campaign in many ways is directly unhelpful to the Republican cause in the sense that it has alienated so many people as well as attracted people. So I don't see it as any kind of model for anything. Uh, but I do see it as, as something we should uh, use as a jumping-off point for the kind of modernizing agenda that we all should be for. Yeah. And Sanders? It's the same. I think that, well, I, in, in, in many ways, I think he's worse than Trump because uh, he is an experienced politician. He should know better than some of the ridiculous and simplistic and totally wrong policy uh, solutions that he's presenting. One of the sentences that you have in the book which really struck me was when you said that it's time for Americans to envision the country they want for themselves, not the country that politicians and their donors tell them they should have. As you think about the mechanisms by which Americans can talk about among themselves or to their elected officials about the country that they want, for themselves. How do you see those mechanisms evolving and coming into, into fuller play? It comes back actually to the point you made in the previous question or the one before that about the, the, the states and, and local government. I think one of the great things about America that I love about America is actually compared to the UK, political power is more decentralized. And you do have the opportunity to have that kind of experimentation. And I think that politics at the local level is where this is going to really be revived. And I, I, and I see that as the real opportunity uh, for yeah. uh, demonstrating this modernizing conservative approach by putting in place really radical transformations in how we do things um, at the local and state level. The thing I would worry about is with the growth of the regulatory state, which mm -hmm. has really grown over the last seven years under Obama into really quite powerful proportions, is that you have within the federal government now regulatory agencies which can stamp out local experimentation, yeah. new, new programs um, that are seen as a threat to or a, a challenge to uh, whether it's existing ideology or to lobbying groups that have powerful lobbying interests. Or, or simply because it's a direct challenge to the way in which regulatory authority sees itself and its role as, as making life better for everyone and that the local, people at the local level simply don't understand or, or, or don't yeah. have a grasp of, of what's important there. So can you see a sort of, you've got to, what, what, I, what, I, what I get from the book is that bottoms up approach. But it seems to me there also has to be a top down which sort of says the regulatory state 
which is, after all, the outgrowth of the bureaucratization of, of government, needs to be reined in and needs yes. to be pulled in. Very much so. Um, I, I wouldn't want you to have the impression that I think that we can just forget about the federal government and Congress. Completely right. It needs to help support this. And I think that with Paul Ryan, you definitely have someone who's really interested mm. in ideas and, and this kind of modernizing conservative agenda. I think that's a really exciting opportunity. What I'd say, however, is the, how hard it is. I mean, we tried to do this in the UK. Every government, every, left and right, again, uh, comes in saying, we're going to cut regulation, we're going to cut the red tape, we're going to reform it, it's all going to be better. Nothing ever changes, it grows and grows under governments of all sides. Under Mrs. Thatcher's administration, regulation in the UK actually rose. And you couldn't have met a person who was more um, determined to cut it back than her. And yet it still increased because of this bureau bureaucratic state that feeds on itself. So I'll just tell you the story of, of how I was defeated by this. Um, I saw all this happening. We came in saying that we were going to, just like everyone else, we're going to cut back on regulation and so on. And my view was that the traditional way of doing, of going about that kind of reform uh, would, you know, would, would defeat us too. Because it's not a, if you just try and say, well, that, we don't like that regulation and that particular, it ends up, you know, you, 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 you chip away at it and nothing really changes. And meanwhile, you've got the this... clawback. And then there's the clawback. They, they more and back. more coming back. So, so my attitude was, uh, which the Prime Minister, you know, allowed me to pursue, was let's just change the default entirely. Rather than saying, here's the regulation, here's the body of regulation, and we're going to try and find the ones we don't like. Let's have a completely different mindset, which is let's assume that it's all gone, all of it, and let's see what happens, and then bring back the regulation that we feel we really need. So that instead of arguing to remove regulation, you're arguing to keep it. It's basically sort of an instant sunset clause for everything, would be one way of thinking about it. And I realized that, and, and everyone agreed, the civil service, it was all agreed that this would be our approach. And um, the process that I then instituted, we called it the red tape challenge, I think. We invited the public to, uh, we crowdsourced ideas for, for, for which ones were the work. We, 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 we took a sectoral approach, so we, we literally made an inventory of all the regulation in the country, every single one. Mm -hmm. We divided it by sector, so here's the consumer staff, here's the manufacturing staff, here's the health and safety, all of this. And then for each one, we invited experts and, and, and practitioners and businesses to come in and and tell us their experience of it, and the, and the officials, the civil servants. And the, I had these re regular review meetings. I did this personally, because I, I knew that if I didn't, it would never happen. And I saw literally from the very first day of this, I mean, we had these regular meetings, when the officials from the Department of, I can't remember what it's called, in, Industry or Business and Commerce, um, came in, and the first set of regulations that we looked at were the consumer protection mm. stuff. And... They had color-coded the hundreds of regulations, and they were the, the masses of paper. And uh, they were supposed to come with the ones that, the, the, uh, with the default being the ones that we were going to um, uh, keep, were the ones that you know, most of them would go, and there's the few that they had to keep. And, and I saw the color coding, and so there's many more of one color than the other. So I said, oh, these are the ones that are going, are they? I said, no, no, they're the ones that they have to say. Because, and so I said, okay, let's get to it. And uh, I remember the, one of the first ones was, was regulation on the f on flammable nightwear um, and some incredibly detailed thing about flammability. And, so, and I said, well, why do we need that? 
um, surely the market can take. As well, I think you'll find that, in fact, um, the real, we've taken soundings, and I, and I think you'll find that the real um, public uh, direction of travel there will be for gender equalization. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we currently have regulations on the flammability of female nightwear, but not for male nightwear, and the gender groups are complaining about I just thought, oh my God, you know, this is, this is what it's going to be like. And sure enough, like other governments before us, we didn't succeed. And I think in the end, you've got to have someone at the top who is just absolutely determined. To, and th th this is where I really got to in the end. My experience was there is only one way of actually um, dealing with all of this, and that is literally... Uh, to uh, reduce the number of bureaucrats. Yep. Like, that is the only way, by, radically. And my argument there was um, that during the days of the British Empire, uh, it was administered from a building called Somerset House in London, which is a very beautiful building. It's now a sort of gallery and public space. And um, I, the, the entire empire was run from Somerset House in, in the bureaucratic sense. And... Um, so I asked how many people fit in, 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 in Somerset House when Britain was running India and all these places around the world. And uh, it turned out that there's basically room for 10,000 people. I said, well, right, if, if, it, if we could do an empire with 10,000 civil servants, surely we can run, it's not even the UK anymore because Scotland has devolved government. We're talking about England and Wales, a fraction of the size. Let's, as a thought experiment, see how we would manage with a civil service of 10,000 rather than the 200,000 central policy-making uh, machinery that we have in the UK. And so that, to me, was the only way of dealing with it. Of course, that didn't happen either. <laughs> it's, uh, I've got one more question for you, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, what, the contrast between Britain and America and the frustrations you obviously felt in trying to get things done and the optimism that you have about the possibility of making it work here. Um, and I like that bit, the contrast with the kind of fashionable despair right now about mm. what's happening in the political process, about what America's fortunes are. And one of the things that you say about that, you, that, that, you, that draws you to Americans and, draw, and that you recognize as key American virtues, one is optimism, but the other one is a sense of community. Yes. And I think that would come as a real surprise to a lot of Europeans who like to think of themselves as the home of community in America, as the home of rugged individualism. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? I think it's, yeah, I th maybe it's a more of a, it's certainly what I've observed in California, a much stronger sense of community, of self-reliance, of an, of an expectation that you look out for each other, neighbors talking to one another, getting involved locally, joining things, that mm -hmm. it feels as if that is really a central part of the American story of, of, of self-government, as, as it were, of, of the, the pioneer spirit of building. You know, that, that's what they did. They built a community. Americans came here and built communities. Um, and that's, it's a beautiful thing, and, it, and it's, a, it's a real striking contrast with, with the UK, which likes to think of itself in those terms mm -hmm. and thinks of America as the rugged individualist. But actually, I think it's much more... Through here, um, now that's also fraying for various reasons. And but but I think that this is um, this brings me to one of the other notions that I, I put forward in the book, which is based on well the the, the sort of label is based on something that's um, a complete cliche in Silicon Valley, but it's a it's a sort of helpful one, and I certainly practice it in the tech firms. There's this notion of uh, MVP, 
minimum viable product. And the, and the idea of minimum viable product is that um, you, the, the best way to, to develop a good product that works is to do a very quick prototype and just put it out there and see what people make of it and respond to their feedback and improve it as you go along rather than waiting to build the perfect thing because by the time you've waited to build the perfect thing, it's too late. Uh, so MVP is just something that people talk about the whole time. So I introduce in this book the notion of MVG, Minimum Viable Government. And um, what I conclude, and, that, and again, this is something that, that, that I pursued in the UK with some success actually, was that there are units of government that should be our default assumption for everything. Uh, going along the notion of this terrible word, subsidiarity, which I hate because it is actually uh, supposed to be the governing principle of the European Union, i.e. power should be devolved to the lowest possible level, complete opposite of how the European Union works. They still describe it as subsidiarity. Um, so MVG, I guess, is another way of talking about subsidiarity, um, which is what is the, what is the, the smallest and, and, and closest to the people organization of government that we, that we can envision. And I think it is the neighborhood. And there is, again, modern neuroscience that, that supports this in terms of the human aspect of this. What is the, uh, min what is the, number of, the maximum number of people that anyone can really relate to and understand and know? Dunbar's number. There's a researcher called Dunbar. I think he's a British academic, Philip Dunbar. And, and, and he posited that no one, no human, can really know and connect with, in a, in a sort of proper human sense, more than 150 people. That's the number, 150. And this has been tested in the workplace and in other forms of organization. Um, that doesn't necessarily equate to every neighborhood, but it's, I just use it because I want to give you a sense of the scale that I have in mind for how far you get. Now, that comes back to this notion of community, because if we actually gave power to communities and neighborhoods, then that would strengthen the... The, 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 this fabric. And I think that the will to do that is already here in America, um, but too much of the power has been sucked away. And it becomes your foundational unit then. Yes, and I think there's much more reform. that could be done at the neighborhood level. Now, in the UK, we did introduce something called neighborhood planning. Planning in our system really means zoning. So it's about who can, controlling what gets built and so on. And we when we introduced, when we, when we described this, everyone thought this was completely mad and would never work. Um, and we persisted with it and actually did manage to introduce this, which was a freedom for any neighborhood anywhere in the country to, first of all, define itself as a neighborhood, to self-organize into an official neighborhood. So they didn't have to follow the bureaucratic map of political organization. Anywhere in the country could say, we declare ourselves to be a neighborhood. Um, then to uh, in, in develop its own vision and plan for what gets built in that neighborhood, including saying, you know, literally whatever they want. From now on, we will only allow thatched roofs to be built or whatever, or only allow pink buildings, literally up to that. And no one could countermand it. And... Um, but the plan had to be developed in, by the community, and then it had to be put to a referendum of that neighborhood, of the citizens in that neighborhood. And it's working in the sense that we've now got, a, I think the last time I was over in, no, it was last year, when I was over in May last year, 
the, the, the cabinet minister overseeing this, the community secretary, said that there had already been over 1,000 of these introduced, voted on, and implemented in a couple of years. So that's, an, that's a real example of something that sounds outlandish, but shows that neighborhood government is not a ridiculous concept. It can, neighborhoods can run things in a way that I think we, we, you know, we've barely scratched the surface of. And for you, that must feel like a very promising legacy. That one is. There's a few other. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I always say we, I, mean, I, I vary the percentage um, that, that in, in my years in government we achieved maybe 5 10% of what I would have liked to have done That's in terms of radical de decentralization and reform and a more human approach. But, yeah, we did something. Yeah. Should we have some questions from the audience? Please, yeah. Go here and here, and then we'll go to the go to the other side of the room next. If you could just identify yourself and disclose whatever affiliation you care to disclose, we'll be all set. Um, Steve Sherman, I'm attorney, um, political activist, I guess. Um, Mr. Hilton, uh, you, you you touched on some of the the, uh, the similarities between Trump and and uh, Sanders and in the context of the need of reform, and you noted that both Trump and Sanders have of, um, caught on or tapped into the disconnect of uh, a segment of the population in terms of globalization or trade, as uh, Trump calls it, and, and um, the role of campaign financing the corrupt political system. Sanders talks about super PACs. Trump talks about um, special interests. And you noted the similarities, but one, one contrast I think maybe if you could com on, comment on, you talked about the need to reform and who's going to do it. Trump seems like to be the nominee, and Sanders is going to sort of, if you will, fall in the, fall in the background. Trump and perhaps the Republicans have a better chance of, of catching on or, or, or making those reforms that are needed. Um, yes. Is, does Donald Trump have a copy of your book? Look, I, I, I'm very happy for this agenda to be advanced by anyone. I care about the agenda rather than the, uh, the individuals. I would be... Um, I take the point, um, and I think that it's important for, you know, we, we need to allow the democratic process to do its work, and then whatever we end up with, that's what we've got to work with. I just don't see, see any interest there. Your topic, in per se, kind of sort of policy reform agenda of any kind. I think both we of them are sort of the, the, both the Trump. Trump, yeah. Trump is more, you know, it's ironically, he's sort of a change, a change candidate in the Republican Party, not the traditional. No, I, I agree, but I, but what's he going to change? I think that let's just imagine that. I mean, I don't think it's difficult to imagine who'll win the nomination. Um, you know, I'm not an expert political commentator. You will be much more, much better place to do that. But let's just imagine he wins the nomination and then he wins the presidency. Um, I just don't see any reform. I, I don't see what he's going to. The, the, the things that he wants to do may or may not be um, sensible. We may or may not agree with them. But I think we can agree that n none of them are systematic reform type ideas. That's not how he thinks, it seems to me. It's, not, it, it's, it's very kind of let's do this specific thing and that specific thing. Rather, let's think about what's wrong with the systems and structures of government. And how to or maybe even more precisely, let me do this. Yeah. Thing. Let me do that kind of a thing. It's I would be amazed. Now, that, however, 
let's be fair, there are elements of what he talks about that, that actually, you know, there really is a connection with, with what's in this book. For example, um, this was actually the third part when, when I was sort of thinking about how to sort of structure what I wanted to say. There is, a, if you think the foundational part is families, then this notion of the post-bureaucratic age and reforming the delivery of public services, there's a third component, which is reforming capitalism, which we've touched on, but not... Now, to me, that's, again, all about markets and proper competition, which we don't have in America. We don't really have functioning markets in most areas. Um, and so there's, a, in, in this book, a massive emphasis on antitrust and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, Trump, to be fair, makes that point, certainly in connection with healthcare. Ways that you know you've got these local monopolies or state-based monopolies, and that's why you get a bad outcome. And he wants more competition. Now that is actually a more of a structural reform than probably anything else he says. So maybe there's an that's not maybe that's grounds for an optimism, a glimmer. Yeah, uh, John Fonte, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, you mentioned in your talk that um, uh, you were attempting to cut one regulation, and you ran into the uh, Identity politics, same, yeah. with the gender issue, and but identity politics is a core, is part of the core agenda of the progressive left: race, ethnicity, gender, uh, immigration, linguistic uh, subgroups, and so on. So this is a core issue. Uh, how does your vision uh, deal with this? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I'll be honest with you; I haven't thought about it enough. Um, I. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very saddened by what's going on on campuses. Um, I think that needs to be challenged vigorously. Um, it's, it, and, and, and it's really worrying. Um, it's not human, because it's, it's actually imposing an ideological worldview on individual personal uh, relationships and circumstances. But I haven't thought enough about what to do about it, I'm afraid. I, I need to... Well, it's, in a sense, it, what you just said, it sort of works in it. There, this, uh, the identity politics agenda, you could say, divides humans into ascribed groups, more or less groups that you're born into, not groups that you voluntarily embrace. Uh, so this could fit in with the agenda in that sense. It, it, it yeah. divides humanity um, into these into these antagonistic groups. So yes. Yeah sort of one way at least to begin to think about it. Yeah, I definitely share that analysis. What I, what I don't really have a clear sense of is how, how, do, we, how do we really turn back this tide? And I think that's one of the things that one sees with the Hillary Clinton campaign is a kind of yes, very embrace much. of identity politics, in this case of, 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 of gender politics, which is, is that you're, if, if you're not supporting Hillary, you're not really being a real woman. And by the way, not all of those things, that doesn't mean that everything under that heading is wrong. I mean, there are areas where I think, again, the implementation, the detail may be at fault, but issues like shared uh, parent, like parental, never mind shared, parental leave mm -hmm. um, and um, family intervention, it does come back to that foundational piece. That's really important. Um, and I don't, we, we must not concede all that thinking to the left. We have to develop conservative solutions to um, supporting families and, and working families that are constructive and creative. It's not good enough just to say, well, that's all identity politics. Yeah, I think you're right. To the back here, and then we've got one, two, three, four, actually, on this side. We'll come back over. Uh, Henry Hatker, retired government. I wonder what your feelings were on, like, the ombudsman set up in Scandinavia, maybe in the 1950s, uh, as a method of 
you know, in a large organization for an individual to present, and he probably might have to them uh, to represent him and help him to get something done. And like uh, civil rights staff currently in America, and then you even have the web, like tweets and availability to reach people that way. What are your feelings on all these modernizations? I'm afraid I didn't quite catch the first part of that. No, we the Scandinavian thing. The Scandinavian, which was? Oh, ombudsman. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with that. We, we, we have ombudsmen people in uh, the UK. Uh, they tend to be a place to appeal against some kind of government... Um, uh, something that government does that you're not happy about for an independent appeal. I don't know what... I'm afraid I don't really understand. Well, it's, in, it's an interesting... Let's think about it this way. You know, the, the old idea, it goes back to Montesquieu at least, is the idea that the, that the best protection between the individual and tyranny are intermediate bodies, yep. uh, which included things such as representative institutions, for example, law courts, uh, uh, corporations, as in the broad sense of legal, rep, you know, legally yep. defined corporations, and so on. What we seem to be moving towards in terms of technology, though, is that is that now the individual choice and the individual participation has become is can be so powerful thanks to the new technologies that those intermediate bodies really can become now much more locally based, mm -hmm. not nationally based. And it gets us back to the question of, does the technology, does the new technology that we're talking about here, including Twitter, including Facebook, and whatever comes next, are these really going to be a threat to local community, a sense of community, as some people fear, or will it be a powerful reinforcer for that sense of I think of it's, local of yeah. choice, individual choice, and 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 in, and community defined in that small 150 plus sort of maximum uh, view. I think that you know, I, I, honestly, I think yeah. it's not that relevant. I think it's overstated all this stuff. Um, I don't, I don't think there's much. I, I think there's sort of, the, I think the communication between you know government and rep representatives and so, that's not really the point. Um, that's not what I mean by the post-bureaucratic age. What I mean, really, is removing the need for the, for the government at all because you can go towards a market-based solution. And so the real technology, technology that matters there are things like data and transparency of data, enabling proper choice and platforms that enable you to um, choose between schools and get the training. You know, that, so it's more... I mean, getting into the detail of it, more, more tech products rather than platforms like Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, that could help. But the, the core of it is, is got to be the data. That's why a really big part of what we did in the UK was our open government data transparency stuff, which I battled like crazy for because mm. the civil service, you know, that's when, that's when it all turned, actually. That's when the official machine really turned against me was when I uh, really pushed forward our... It's really interesting, actually, how, how that was the, the, the thing that really got them, was releasing all this information, yeah. because that's what really is the power. So I think it's much more that kind of thing. There, however, there is one uh, tech, uh, tech, successful tech business that, that we could point to in this context, which is nextdoor.com. 
I don't, has that moved over here? I don't know. Do you have nextdoor.com? Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and that is very much a neighborhood organizer. It's like Facebook for your neighborhood, I guess, is a simple way of thinking about it. I don't know if they use that term. Um, they're out in San Francisco, and I've, I, I, we, we've actually connected with them in relation to CrowdPack and whether there's something interesting there about um, local representation and funding. So I think that next door might be a good place to start for, for neighbor. I mean, it already is doing that in terms of neighborhood self-organization. Here and then we'll take those two and then here and then we'll swing back over this way as we finish up. Um, Sam Miranda, I'm a retired federal employee, uh, a regulator, in fact. Um, just as an <laughs> no, <laughs> just just as an aside on Nextdoor, I'm a member of Nextdoor and I successfully got a no turn on red sign removed from my street using Nextdoor. Great. Door. Is that right? Great. I mean, that's really. I love stories like that. That's real. Um, I used to work for the, I retired from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where part of my job was to uh, uh, review applications from utilities operating nuclear plants as to safety aspects and um, following regulations. And uh, I asked a lot of questions. And sometimes the questions were hard to answer, or maybe they didn't want to answer them. And um, what I'm getting to is the, the this, um, um, complicity between business and government, mm -hmm. it, it works the other way too because uh, when I asked uh, some tough questions, sometimes vice presidents of the various utilities would come to see my boss and then I would be asked, well, do you really want to answer, do you really want to ask this question? And uh, lately, Congress has been cutting back on the budget of the NRC and the NRC has been cutting back on its hiring and I understand that they are um, considering uh, offering buyouts. And um, as, as you may know, in industry, you know, uh, and government, when you do things like that, when you offer buyouts, you often lose your best people mm -hmm. because they're the ones who have alternatives. So my question is, I haven't read your book, but uh, in, in, in your various examples, have you followed them through to, to uh, scenarios like this? And I, I agree, you know, we could, we could do with a lot fewer bureaucrats. As, as Reagan said, uh, the worst words in the English language are, uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to, to help. Uh, do you follow through on these examples to see how, how the intended effect is, is not achieved for, for effects like, for reasons that, that I described? Yeah. I'm just trying to recall uh, the, 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 the work that we did. I developed a whole strategy around, we, we have this term quango, I don't know if, it's, it's, it's actually originated, I think, in the 80s. It stands for, it's an acronym, Quasi-Autonomous Non-Government Organization, and it, it's basically the regulatory state in many ways. And first of all, the first point I'd make is what, what the, the argument I was making about cutting numbers, that related purely to this, what, what we call White, Whitehall uh, in the UK, literally the street in, in London, central London where all the government departments typically are, um, the central policy-making staff, so these are the, these these are not regulators for specific things. This is purely the the, the policy makers, the, the 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 civil servants who run policy. That's the bit that I wanted to drastically reduce. Um, in terms of the regulatory agencies that are separate to that, um, one of the things that we I'm just trying to record we 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 tried to take an objective kind of principles based 
analysis to it. I'll try, maybe dig out the... I think we did a really good speech on it, actually. It says, okay, how should we think about this? Um, what are the circumstances in which we need good regulation? Because there was a question we asked, actually, which is, how is it possible that in the UK today we are simultaneously over-regulated and under-regulated? In the sense that, if you look at what happened with the financial crash and, and, the, and, the, and, and all, the, all the rest of it, that is an example of under-regulation in the sense that um, you had these massive systemic risks being undertaken under the nose of regulators. They didn't do anything. Um, but equally, you have absurdly um, you know, intrusive regulation on things like which days farmers can put their, you know, like the straw out or whatever. You know, ridiculous. Complete, and there's just endless examples of absurd over-regulation. And we, we had a sort of argument there, which was that too often it's about regulating process, not outcomes. Um, and that you've ended up with these organizations and these regulators developing a life of their own. And so we're saying, in, for example, having directors of strategy and communications, and all, as if they were kind of corporate. Why do you need any of that when they're there? If you can be very specific about exactly what they're supposed to be there for, um, the outcomes that they're supposed to uh, drive towards, then you can try and focus them on areas where you need things that are independent of government. For example, um, in, in the administration of you know, commercial markets or something, where you, where you need to know that politicians aren't involved, or, um, or technical matters, where you, that's a good example, I think, where the public wants to be reassured that someone who really knows what they're talking about, rather than uh, an, an elected official who may have as a point of view that's not based on a technical understanding of the issue is making the decision. So I think it's about just being thoughtful about the um, circumstances in which good regulation is necessary. And I just don't like that rhetoric of um, just a sort of bl blindly cutting back government because that is not thoughtful. And I think that's one, one, one element of modernizing the conservative approach to things is to, is to show a degree of thoughtfulness about some of these things. Right, as opposed to the across-the-board cuts approach. Yes. Kinds of things. We have a question here, and then I'll go to the gentleman in the Georgetown sweatshirt. I'm Mr. Hilton. My name is Stephen Yen. I'm a student at Georgetown University, and I'm also a former campus lead for Governor Jeb Bush. Um, my question focuses on our political discourse today. And as a college student, I feel that um, a lot of my peers are uh, avoiding conversations on campus that they do not feel comfortable with. And this is marked by something called safe spaces. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know, you, you can disagree with me on this, but I feel that um, part of what makes us human is, uh, is knowing how to feel pain and how to deal with things that we may not be comfortable with. And I feel that part of the safe spaces movement also contributes to people putting ideologies and labels before personal opinions. What do you think, or what's a way that, I guess, younger people or people in general can have a more inclusive dialogue where you're not just a Republican or Democrat, but you're you? Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. Um... I don't have an answer. I have a couple of observations or responses. First of all, I think there's an... I'm just going to tell a story. Um, 
which is, I was really surprised to learn when I was in London two weeks ago, we launched Crowdpack in the UK and I was back there. Um, and my, my closest friend, he's in the book a lot, Rohan Silver, who worked with me in the government, um, and he runs a business in the UK um, now, um, and he was describing how in the workplace this safe spaces thing has crept in, in the UK, with a younger generation of, sort of and, 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 and the most sort of innocuous comments in, the work, in, in a meeting saying, I don't feel safe. I was like really surprised to hear this, that it's got to be, and he, his response was just to say the same thing back. He said, well, I don't feel safe now that you said that. We can't have, you know, just challenging it um, because I can't say what I think. I don't feel safe. And I think in the end, that's how you fight this stuff with, you know, on a human level with individual leadership. And I think it relates to something else, which is not connected to this point, but it's a really good example. With a lot of cultural and social changes, there really isn't, you can't, you can't do it through, I mean, government can have a role, but actually the best leadership is human, is an individual one. Here's some examples. Um, I thought that Paul Ryan, when he said, in, in the conversation about whether he would take on the speakership, and just made it clear that he was going to have weekends with his family, was an incredible piece of leadership that will have probably a bigger impact than any amount of legislation or regulation. You're just saying it's okay for a, a, a man in a leadership position in the Republican Party to say that I put my family first. I think that was great. Um, and you can achieve a lot through that kind of social... I mean, actually, it's all written up very nice, and I talk about it in the book, you know, behavioral science and so setting social norms is a really powerful change agent. Um, so I think that's got a part to play. Of, and um, I think that... Um, the, on the late, this, again, it's an observation. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, it just prompted a thought, which is that with virtual reality. So there's a um, there's something called the Virtual Reality Lab at Stanford that I've been to, and one of their really interesting experiments was um, when they they somehow created a virtual. They 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 they're sort of academic. They're using virtual reality for academic research and, and social and cultural research. For example, when they put people in some kind of scenario of environmental destruction, like a fish swimming with coral reefs that are dying or trees being chopped down, does it? then they measure whether that changes their behavior over the next seven days, for example, recycling or turning out light. It turns out that it does. Um, they had something on political identity where you could, through virtual reality, experience what it was like to be a Democrat if you're a Republican, and vice versa. They, and I don't know. And, and, and they were, and they absolutely established that seeing things from another person's point of view changed your attitudes. Um, I don't know what to make of that, but it just came to mind in response to your question. We'll go here, and then we have time for two more. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Reed Howard. I'm a junior in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. And my question is about the internet age. Um, mm. I'm very cognizant of the fact that Uber knows where I travel, Google knows what I shop for. Um, so my question is what expectations should I have for privacy in the 21st century? Um, where, what's the government's role in protecting our information? And then where should we draw the line between how much information government can get from these companies that know so much about us? Yeah, uh, it's a big issue. I think that um, I should declare an interest as well because my wife, Rachel, um, was for many years head of uh, 
government relations and, and PR at Google worldwide. And she now uh, performs that role at Uber. Uh, so I've... I, I've, so I don't speak for them. She does a very good job of their own, and I often have disagreements. Right? You'll see in the book somewhere I write that I, I, I try and avoid talking about Google or Uber in the book in order to, in order to uh, not have strife at home. So, but I just wanted to make, make that clear. Yeah, there you are. So I just wanted to make that clear. Um, now, the thing, this, and this is very much a, a, a Google position on this, but I, I happen to agree with it. Um, which is that the, 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 the information um, that Google has on you, and that it's fine as long as you're in control of it. And you, know, you set your privacy settings, and you decide how much they have, and you can, serve, you can search incognito or whatever. You don't want them to see what you are. As long as you're in control, it's okay. I think that's right. And... And the basic answer is, well, if you don't want, and there, there, it is a, you know, there, there's, there's, there's choice here, and you are at liberty not to use Uber if you don't want them to know where you're going, um, and so on. I mean, I don't have a phone, I don't have a smartphone, so I can't use Uber, you know, so I just, I was like, you know, hopefully they won't be completely put out of business. But um, I think there's a true point there, which is that you are in control of it. I, mean, I think the government point is very important. Um, and there was a great debate about that. I wel welcomed the whole Snowden thing to, for prompting that debate. Um, and I think that is something to be really concerned about. And I think that they, but I think they think they're approaching it quite well. I think the Obama administration actually did quite, they had some information bill of rights or something that they put, I thought it was good. Um, There's something else you asked about. Oh, no, sorry, I wanted to say another thing about privacy, which is it's a massive generational change. I mean, I find it shocking the degree to which people your age are okay with sharing information I mean, I, about them, about yourself. I, I find it truly shocking. I'm still in a, in a world where when I, you know, put in into Google Maps my address to look at, you know, the, uh, the distance to whatever destination, and a picture of our house comes up, I find that through Street View. Without me, I find that truly shocking and invasive. Now, now younger people think that's completely normal. Now, let me understand this. You don't have a smartphone? I do not. You're, you work at Silicon Valley. You own a company. You don't have a smartphone. Right. You're still a BlackBerry guy? No, no. I don't have any kind of phone. You don't have any kind of phone, ladies and gentlemen. Now I'm not feeling safe. <laughs> well, I, and I haven't for four years, actually. Wow. Was it, it, when you I moved gave here. it up as an experiment? Or you know, simply, you it was simply you simply said... You know, I don't really need all the... I'll tell you, I, funny enough, I have written about it because a journalist I met thought it was very interesting. Um, so I've written, it, written about it for The Guardian, actually. You can find a piece that goes through it at length. But basically, the, the short story is that it was when I moved here from America, from the UK, and in government, I, I, I've always hated smartphones. I've never liked the screens. I found them really difficult to use. So I had this old-fashioned Nokia phone all the time I was oh, in the wow. government with buttons, with actual buttons that you could press. And I loved, and, and I communicated a lot on text. That's how I used to operate. And um, I loved this old Nokia phone. And then and I didn't realize that it wasn't made anymore. And I moved here, and they'd, and they'd put some security thing on it so I could talk to the prime minister and whatever. And it, none of that worked, of course. And then the, it was a government phone. And then I came here, and it wasn't, I was no longer in the government. So it didn't work. And then... Um, 
what happened. I uh, tried to get the Nokia phone back, and, and they didn't make them anymore. So I couldn't buy that. And I tried, and basically, Silicon Valley, you had to get a smartphone. I couldn't find that. And basically, after a few weeks of faffing around, not being able to get a phone, I realized that a week had gone by without any kind of phone. And, and I you thought, were still alive. Right. And not just that, but sort of, you know, happy and careful. And so it, be- it started on, as an accident, and then it is very much now a choice, much to the consternation. Well, you'll read the piece and you'll see. Yeah, we'll have to do that. I've tried to be fair about the impact, not just on me, but on others around me. Did you have a question? You did. Then that'll be our last question. I, what, uh, what, I would use the mic there. Yeah. There yeah Bill Tucker is my name. I... Uh, I worked in the White House uh, uh, Counsel's Office during the Reagan administration and, and ran a part of the Reagan campaign and the senior Bush's campaign and the junior Bush's campaign also. And I'd like uh, uh, your observation and, and your opinion as to the current situation we, we have in our country uh, in this election coming up. Uh, there has not been a candidate like Trump uh, in our country that's been successful. Uh, yeah, Rockefeller pretty much yeah, financed his campaign, and uh, two other uh, candidates, uh, uh, Boone Pickens, uh, pretty much financed his campaign, another wealthy mm-hmm. Texan. But no one uh, has been successful in our country by self-funding their campaign because you don't get people committed then. They haven't, yeah. uh, they haven't committed their money, so they're not all in. And... Uh, if you have an observation, I would like uh, to see what you think about uh, Trump's chances of winning the nomination, number one, and winning the election, number two. I think they're very high. I think he's going to win the nomination, and I think there's a very – I think that anyone who thinks that he won't um, – you know, that, that he, I think there's this assumption that he will obviously lose to Hillary Clinton. I think it's completely wrong. Um, I think that on the self-financing, but one of the reasons I set up CrowdPack was exactly to your point that um, uh, to enable non-billionaires, independent candidates, or or, or fresh type, you know, candidates that don't fit the mold, to be able to run for office without that. I mean, Bloomberg is another example, a very good example in my view. But um, uh, uh, sorry, an example of someone who's, who's did a great job. Um, so I think the. It's not, I don't like the idea that, that only incredibly wealthy people can jump into politics. But they haven't been successful. They haven't been successful, but I, I, I think it would be good if... That's right, and for the point you make, which is that they, they typically haven't... They've been a, they, they, you know, they, they haven't been politically savvy enough to transcend the fact that they don't have a base. That's exactly right. They don't have that. There's a total connection, as you say, between a donor who then then a volunteer and a supporter and an organizer, and that's what parties try to do. Um, but Trump is different because he does have that 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 you know amazing communication skill and an, an ability to really tap into public sentiment, um, and and that's what distinguishes him. And he has a he has a base. It's a media base, as opposed to tr- yeah. But he really. I mean, there was an amazing piece on. Um, uh, segment on Morning Joe, I noticed the, uh, this week, where they spoke to Trump supporters outside a rally. I don't know if anyone saw it. It was a sort of two-and-a-half-minute compilation of the things that Trump supporters were saying in response to why are you supporting him. And as the panelists on Morning Joe noted, that it was the, the, the most kind of on-message 
response you could ever have imagined. He's, he is a brilliant communicator, and he understands his audience and speaks in terms that they understand. And so they can say, why do you support him? Well, because he's going to shake things up. He's going to do this. He's going to take on the crowd. All the things that he says, they repeat because they're simple and clear and uh, relate to their lives. And so that's why he's able, I think, to, that's why I think he's going to be different to the other self-funders because he's, he's just much better at the, at the art of being a politician. Yep. He's a walking meme. Well, I told you, I promised you this was going to be a thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion, and I think we came through. Um, I want to thank Steve Hilton for a very fascinating hour and a half. I can't believe it's gone by already. And the thing I will leave to the rest of you is, is that this book, um, whatever happens in this election, whoever wins, if a Republican party, if any major political party, is going to reorganize itself and resurrect itself, revivify itself, then it's going to ignore this book at its peril. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. again, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.